Father, we are grateful for uh, your goodness to us in such a beautiful day. And we thank you that you've created us not only to perceive it, but to understand that it comes from your hand, to find delight in it, and to have that be an occasion to give you thanks and in that gratitude um, be stirred further to serve you. And we pray that you'd uh, enable us tonight at, in this hour to uh, be diligent in our labors, uh, but to rejoice in the things that you've revealed to us from your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, tonight we're going to take up a Free Will, Chapter 9, and then we're going to take up um, the uh, Chapter 7 of God's Covenant with Man. Um, I don't think we're going to make it to of Christ the Mediator. Uh, these two ahead are just so rich and full, but perhaps we will. Um, so, of Free Will, as I think I've mentioned, um, I believe the Westminster Standards are uh, unique in having a chapter devoted to free will. And um, it, I think, is reflective of the uh, depth of thought that the divines had uh, and their concern to communicate, especially uh, with respect to these more difficult things, because it's for want of grasping something of this that so many uh, are incapacitated with respect to some of the major doctrines of Scripture, particularly the doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation, uh, in his eternal election, in the doctrine of his providence, and in the doctrine of uh, the efficacious call that uh, we're dependent upon God by the Spirit to enable us uh, to come to Christ and to believe. Um, and so it, it's with those great subjects in mind that I think the divines were willing to enter into a much more difficult area, but to try and do it with biblical fidelity, with clarity of thought, and with relative simplicity. But there's no question that we're um, heading into deep waters here. So, chapter 9 of Free Will. God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty that is neither forced nor any uh, by any absolute necessity of nature determined to good or evil. A simple sentence, but one filled with all kinds of possible perplexities. Um, so here they're talking about uh, human liberty uh, of will in general, um, uh, in the abstract, as it were. Not human beings in any particular state, but rather just as contemplated as creatures of God. Um, and what they assert here is quite astonishing. Uh, natural liberty um, refers, we say, to the nature of the thing. So that if the thing somehow were to lose that natural liberty, 
it wouldn't be what it was. So what follows from this is that it is impossible under any state or circumstances, according to the divines, for the creature created in the image of God not to have this natural liberty. Whether uh, pre-fall, post-fall, uh, as redeemed, or in heaven. Um, the, in other words, a will, uh, excuse me, in other words, it's not a will if it's not free. That's what they're getting at. The paragraph expounds further, noting that the will cannot be compelled, nor is it, in the nature of the case, good or evil. If you will something wicked, it is not the willing that is evil, but rather it is the object. Now let me see if I can help. Uh, that's pretty... Uh, terse and condensed. Um, first, the will can't be compelled. Now, we all the time say, uh, he compelled me to do this. Uh, to put it in the most difficult circumstances, someone holds a gun to my head and says, you uh, uh, curse God or die. Um, and uh, you might think that I could say that person compelled me to curse God. But the fact of the matter is, uh, my will was still naturally free in that moment. I had a choice to make. I could choose to die or I could choose uh, to curse God. Now, my culpability in that choosing to curse God would be very, very highly mitigated. I, I, I don't know whether I told you the story of Haile Selassie, but uh, uh, his son was kidnapped and uh, threatened with death if he didn't um, denounce his father's rule. And uh, the young man, he, he was a young man, he wasn't a child, but... Uh, he caved in, and uh, uh, they finally rescued him. And uh, it's uh, said that Haile Selassie said to his son, I'm very, very grateful to have you restored to me. But had you refused to denounce our government, I would have been very, very proud at your funeral. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, in any case, the point is that the will can't be compelled. There's, there's no mechanism whereby somebody can get inside and compel your will to do something. But they can have unfair, uh, unjust, wicked uh, um, attempts to motivate that will and we might in weakness cave into them. So it can't be compelled, neither is it of any absolute necessity determined to good or evil. Now we need to have a great care here. Effectively, what uh, the divines are saying is, is that the will, they're not spelling all this out here, but the, obviously the will is part of the inner person. What overall we call the soul. 
and the soul typically we think of as uh, being um, having a function of mind. It's not part of the soul as mind, but it's the soul functioning in knowing. And it's we we talk about will. It's the soul functioning in choosing. And uh, it might help us to see this more easily if we think of the mind. The mind is just the mind. It's a thinking thing. And it can think evil thoughts, but the mind itself isn't evil if it thinks an evil thought. It's simply the instrument of thinking. The evil is in me who directs my mind to to think that evil thought. Uh, And so the mind isn't virtuous if it follows Paul's injunctions in in Philippians and thinks on these things, the noble and the just and the beautiful and so on. The, the, The mind's a a means to an end and and depending on the ends uh, we characterize it as good or evil and what the divines are saying essentially is that the same thing is true for the will the will is just the will it's a choosing function in the soul and it can be used to will wickedly or to will virtuously but the will itself is not by any necessity of nature determined one way or the other. Uh, now, uh, the, uh, we, we want to observe carefully here. It is often said that Calvinism denies free will. But as you can see, on the contrary, Westminster Calvinism uh, asserts that a will is not a will if it's constrained or comp- com- compelled. In other words, Calvinism is the deadly opponent of deterministic scientific materialism. Uh, Calvinism is the champion of the liberty of the will. Uh, I think beyond any other system of thought in the world. Um, the um, Chad, in his commentary, uh, nicely refers to our self-consciousness in order to help us see this. Uh, he urges that nothing is more fundamental to my sense of self than my conviction that I can do and will as I please. Um, And nothing is more fundamental to my sense of responsibility. Nothing is more fundamental than my sense of responsibility when I so choose. Uh, These... um, Elements of self-consciousness are absolutely fundamental. You can't get behind them. Uh, When I choose, everything in me says that um, it's my conviction. I can do as I will. And everything in me says, when I do choose, that I feel responsible uh, for what I have done. Now, let me add here, we're going a little beyond... Uh, the confession, but um, the uh, Reformed theology has developed since the 17th century and through a lot of controversies and and further reflection. Generally speaking, we say now that it's better to talk about free agency rather than free will. Free agency rather than free will. Agency refers to the whole person. Will refers 
uh, in this day to a faculty of the person, but at least some uh, part of the soul's working that seems uh, smaller than the rest. But the point here, it's not the will that's free. It's the person that's free to will. It is I who am free, not my will. My will, in fact, is always at the service of my disposition. <laughs> in one sense, in one sense, in relationship to me, who, uh, who was doing the choosing, the will always does what I choose to do. So in, in that sense, it's, it's completely uh, captive, but that's not captivity. That's the way such an instrument ought to function vis-a-vis -vis the whole person. Um, so, uh, the, um, as I say, my will, in fact, always acts in the service of my disposition. And what I mean by disposition is the inherent qualities of my mind and character. A. A. Hodge, in his commentary on the Confession, puts it this way. He says, my disposition is my whole intellectual and emotional state. And the point is, all that I am with respect to know and with respect to uh, my desires uh, directs the choices that I make so that the will is at service to that. So it's far better not to talk about as it were, some possible subdivision within the human person is being free, but to say that the person willing is free. And I, I think that's a, a far superior locution. Um, so this opening paragraph teaches about human beings as willing, as I said, as such, whether created, fallen, regenerated, or glorified. Um, now, what follows is going to look at this uh, uh, capacity, this will, under each of those uh, circumstances, created, fallen, regenerated, and glorified. And in fact, this in the older theology was an especially important um, uh, set of distinctions. Um, the uh, Thomas Boston had a magnificent uh, Puritan from the 17th century, a magnificent um, treatise uh, entitled Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. And it was a profound uh, biblical study of who we are as created, who we are as fallen, who we are as regenerated, and who we are as glorified. Uh, so that's what's going to follow. So let me stop there and uh, see if anybody has a question or a comment or concern on this first point. I know this can seem pretty abstract and ethereal, uh, but um, it, it does have uh, a, uh, a very important purpose in terms of our capacity to uh, understand ourselves and some of these very important doctrines of Scripture. Yes, please, Tony. So how is our will different in the created state from the glorified state? Can you hold on to that question? Oh, I, I'm going to work my way toward that through, through this chapter. We're going to, uh, and, and I'm going to 
pull together the pieces that are going to finally make a plausible answer to that question. Okay. But I, I, I will, by way of anticipation, say it's greatly improved. <laughs> but uh, hang on to that. And if I, if I don't get something satisfactory to you, um, stop me at that point and we'll try again. Thank you. Any other questions or comments uh, at this point? All right, section two. Here we are. Uh, uh, human beings as created. Man in his state of innocency had freedom and power to will and to do that which is good and well-pleasing to God, yet mutably so that he might fall from it. Now let me start well, so here begins the discussion of free agency in the four different stages of redemptive history, as created, fallen, regenerated, and glorified. As created, Adam and Eve had a disposition to love and serve God. That's the Ecclesiastes citation from 729. God hath made man upright. He isn't made morally neutral. He's made upright. And that's what the divines are picking up. They had the freedom and power to will and to do that which is good and well-pleasing to God. But then they continue, but yet mutably, so that he might fall from it. Now, uh, the first thing I want to say here is that um, one of the things... Uh, that um, uh, makes uh, our ability to know soundly possible is the fact that uh, the things that are known in some way are within the range of our experience. But when we come to discuss the state of the human will or human agency before the fall, since all we know of is the fallen state of mankind, and particularly ourselves. I mean, self-knowledge is uh, as important as any other kind of knowledge when we come to these subjects, uh, because we have an immediate experience of the things that are being spoken of here. But the fact is, we, we, we haven't a clue uh, with respect to the unfallen state. Um, and we don't know how much different our fallen circumstances, uh, uh, well, how much our fallen circumstances make a difference. There's a caveat. I can say more about it. But the point is here, as created, Adam and Eve had a disposition to love and serve God, yet we shudder to note this disposition was changeable. Now, (laughs) uh, to say it's changeable is not to say very much. Um, We have no idea how it's changeable. 
And we were never told in any text that it was changeable. How do we know it's changeable? Because it changed. It evidently changed. And uh, that's almost all that we can say about this circumstance. Um, the, um, and uh, that's one of the great mysteries as far as I'm concerned uh, that we have to live with in this age. Whether it's beyond our finite capacity, I, I doubt, but it's one of the first things I'm going to ask about. <laughs> uh, should the Lord preserve me to heaven? Um, the, um, now, with respect to this, I think Chad's comment on page 137 um, uh, with respect to the changeability of the will, um, Chad, Chad says, it is also true that God can change our wills irresistibly. And I think to be more precise, we would need to say, God doesn't change our wills. He changes our disposition. And when the disposition changes, we will in a different way. Um, because back to what we've said about the natural will, it can't be fixed one way or the other as a will, as, as such. Um, and, and we've also argued that what uh, gives the will its character is the person choosing their disposition, their, the whole complex of who they are. So, um, we are brought to life in the Lord again, and as such, we now want, though imperfectly, what is good. That's what God changes. Uh, we were dead in trespass and sin, but now we're alive in Christ. In any case, Chad is certainly correct to urge us to pray for God's help whenever we're thinking or speaking about this subject. Um, so, point two then, uh, uh, in, in the understanding our agency in the state of innocency. Does anyone have uh, any question or comment or concern about that? All right. Hey, Dave. Yes, please write that down verbatim if you don't mind. Can you repeat what Chad said? That when God changes the disposition? Uh, that, the, the, the disposition part was me. Okay. Um, I'd love to hear that again. <laughs> Chad says on page 137, I'll be more careful, Steve, I'm sorry. Quote, it is true that God can change our wills irresistibly. End quote. Okay. Now, I want to adjust just slightly what Chad has said. What I'm saying is that God doesn't change our wills. Rather, he changes our disposition. In regeneration, we are brought to life in the Lord again. And as such, now... We want, we will, imperfectly, what is good. So, 
it's when my um, mind and heart has changed, when my character has changed, that I will differently. Now, it is certainly true. The word irresistibly certainly applies to that work on my character. Uh, when I'm brought to life, I'm irresistibly brought to life. When God says, let there be light, there's light. When the Holy Spirit said, let, says, let there be uh, uh, life, there is life. Um, does that help? Or do you want me to slow down on something, Steve? Or, uh, no, that's uh, yeah, perfectly clear. Thank you. I got that. I appreciate it. All right. All right. Man in the state of innocency. Number three, by his fall into a state of sin, oh, excuse me, man, man by his fall into a state of sin, um, excuse me, I, I, I'm having some trouble. I have new glasses, and, and happily in some ways, and unhappily in other ways, I have two sets of new glasses. Uh, the lady at the uh, optometrist talked me into getting uh, computer glasses, which are designed to lessen the rays from the computer screen and the stress on your eyes, uh, and they're designed to um, uh, for close working. Uh, on my bifocals, I have long distance and then shorter distance. Well, on my regular glasses, my long distance is in the top part of the glass, and my closer working is in the lower part. But on my computer glasses, the close working part is through the top, and then if it's a little longer away, I look through the bottom. So <laughs> I'm having a terrible time to remember which part of the glasses to look through, and that's why I'm constantly losing my place in what I'm trying to read. I, I was terribly troubled by that last Sunday. I got to re remember to bring my computer glasses so I will have the ability to look at what I'm trying to read down on it. But anyway, I'm sorry to trouble you with all that, but the, that's the account of it. Um, so, um, Holy lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being otherwise altogether adverse from what is good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Now, uh, these words are essential to grasp if we're not to be misled. Quote, wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. Notice, it isn't wholly lost all ability to will good. It's spiritual good accompanying salvation. Given their death and sin, they are no longer alive to God in any sense. But they are alive to sin. And they freely choose the way of disobedience. They're disposed to disobedience and they freely choose that with the will functioning the way a will is supposed to function. 
Thus they are in bondage in one sense and not in another. They're in bondage in the sense that that disposition is dead and the will can't do anything better than what that disposition directs to. But on the other hand, they're perfectly free because that disposition isn't compelled to will in any way, but freely chooses what is disobedient to God. Um, So, to put it another way, they are in bondage to themselves, and yet they are properly free to do what they want. That's the first point. Now then, what is spiritual good? They can do some kind of good, is implied by the divine seer. But what is spiritual good that they can't do? Well, what spiritual good is this? It's, It's got four characteristics at least. It is done to glorify God. It is done according to his word. It is done in obedience to him. And it's done to love and serve others. By the fall, no sinner as such ever seeks the glory of God. No sinner as such ever seeks to order his life according to God's word. He can order his life according to the rules of the scripture because he may think that they make sense, that they're profitable in some way, but never to simply acknowledge the authority of God in it. Um, He uh, can, uh, I should have filled it out, uh, to love and serve others as creatures created in the image of God. Uh, He never can do that. He he can do things that are loving to others. He can love his children. Uh, He can love his neighbor, but never love his neighbor as a person created in the image of God, as a part of what it means to be uh, in the family of God. So, no spiritual good, but other kinds of goods. And you see the scripture is very bold in this point. Uh, the great text here is uh, Jeremiah thirteen twenty three. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then can you also do good who are accustomed to do evil? Do you see what, 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 what you're accustomed to? What is your characteristic response? You can't change that. That's who you are. But on the other hand, as I say, they did not lose all ability to will any good at all. They can will all kinds of goods, not accompanying, not spiritual and not accompanying salvation. Uh, that is natural goods. So there's uh, uh, man by his fall. Um, the uh, I just I, I'm sorry I wanted to draw your attention to the uh, under the fall Romans eight seven and eight because it's such a powerful uh, text 
Um, the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, is enmity against God. It hates God. It's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can it be. It cannot be subject to the law of God. Why? Because they won't be the subject to it. They're at enmity with God. They hate God. Uh, so that those in the flesh cannot please God. That's the uh, determination of Scripture. And, uh, but you see how, nevertheless, the person is free in doing that. And then on the other hand, in terms of uh, the transformation, uh, the text in Romans 5.5, 5, um, that um, uh, when we've been changed, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. See, there's the, the change of disposition that leads to a change in willing. All right, let me pause on that one. Uh, uh, the um, nature of agency uh, among those who are... Um, uh, fallen, but then, um, uh, yes, those who have fallen. Any question? So, I mean, we, we can speak of this. Sometimes reform folk uh, speak in such a way as if um, uh, it's impossible for people dead in trespass and sin to do anything admirable, uh, uh, good with respect to th this world and so on. And we, we dare not give that impression. Everybody knows people who did not know Christ and trust in him, but who showed great courage at some moment that's admirable and to be commended or show, showed great mercy at some point or sh showed great generosity at, at some point. Um, and uh, I, we need to be able to admit that and to commend it, uh, partly because that helps to preserve all of us in a fallen world. We want to not only say that unbelievers are capable of that, but we want to encourage them to do it, because otherwise we'd all be at each other's throats all the time. Um, yes, Matson's. Uh, Dave, is there is there any distinction with, with what we're talking about here in the confession and what uh, the the key of total depravity? No, I think this is perfectly consistent with total depravity, uh, but it it means we have to make sure we're not following the theology of the first glance. Remember, we said total depravity. To, better than, than the word total would be pervasive. That's what total means there. Right. right. If you meant total uh, in, in terms of intensive, well, then you've never met a totally depraved person. If you'd met Hitler, maybe you'd have come close yeah, to it. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I understand that. I just, I was trying to, I, I was wondering if, certainly consistent, but this is not necessarily pervasive depravity that we're talking about here? 
Well, see, see what? That's a different thing, or? Well, no. What we're saying is, is that um, is that is that original original sin would be the pervasive depravity. Uh, yes, and but see what we're all uh, remember the the uh, the plowing of the wicked is an abomination to God. Now, the plow, plowing of the wicked is a good thing. If he were a sluggard, not attending to his fields, there he would be. Uh, more consistent with his being dead in trespass and sin. But the fact is, the unbeliever has the capacity to be a diligent farmer. He has the capacity to be a heroic soldier. He has the capacity to be a loving father. Um, And quite often, especially when Christianity has had a great effect on the culture and the, uh, what we would call the... um, uh, the the ambient moral sense of a people tends to lead people actually to act uprightly if for no other reason then that's the way we are we tend to want to mostly act the way everybody else does and with respect to how we do things um, so uh the, I will say that the, that often you don't hear this emphasized in uh, uh, reform theology, especially when it's being spoken of in the abstract. I came to grasp this most fully by uh, the ministry of uh, Robert Dabney. His book, The Practical Philosophy, is a deeply penetrating analysis of uh, moral philosophy and the moral capacities of human beings. And uh, he makes this very clear. But you can see uh, over and over again in Scripture, um, I'll take for the example, the people on the island uh, of uh, Malta, where we just were last week. Later in that text, it commends them for how uh, warmly and carefully uh, Luke uses words that uh, would indicate virtue. But they knew nothing of Christ. But they had pity and uh, cared for the shipwrecked and, and uh, so on. And, we, and the fact is we just, we see this. Sometimes as, as Christians we don't, we're not uh, as self-conscious of it as we ought to be. Um, but, you know, uh, just think of your response when you read a great adventure tale or you see a great film and there are heroic characters and so on. You don't sit there the whole time while the guy is uh, sacrificing himself for the cause of his whole platoon and so on thinking, well, that totally depraved sinner, he's doing something worthless. (laughs) No, you're moved to uh, recognize the natural virtue in it, and it's even more than heartrending that that natural virtue is of no virtue whatsoever to have his soul no blessedness. Does that, Greg, answer or address what you're getting at, or push it further if you want? Greg? 
I hope you didn't walk off in disgust. <laughs> no, can you hear me? Uh, now I can, yeah. Yeah, Paul, my apologies. Um, no, I, I think that that helps. Uh, this, this certainly is a, uh, consistent with, well, I'll use pervasive depravity, but it's not... I guess, and really what the confession is trying to do here is be very careful about aspects of human agency and yes. ability to make, to make correct choices. Yes. And they're focused, got kind of a laser focus on that, and they're not talking about just sort of the pervasive right. depravity of man in, in the world. Right. Or in, in creation. Yes, okay. I think that's right, Greg. Thanks. All right. Anybody else on... Uh, this point. All right. So now man as redeemed. Point four. When God create converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he freeth him from his natural bondage under sin. And by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Yet so, as that by reason of his remaining corruption, he doth not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but doth also will that which is evil. So, here is some very good news. God changes us. Uh, He frees us from bondage to sin. He frees us from our indisposition to good. And we are enabled by this change of heart, supernaturally wrought, which we do not participate in, in any sense, as the confession is going to later say when it talks about regeneration, we are entirely passive with respect to this matter. But once we are enabled, then we're not passive at all. We freely will and do that which is spiritually good. Uh, now, remember, what, what is spiritually good? That's, it, it, it's done to the glory of God. That becomes uh, the chief goal of our existence, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's done uh, according to the rule of his word uh, for the sake of the acknowledgement of his authority. Uh, and it, it's done uh, in order to uh, serve him and serve uh, creatures created in his image. That's what spiritual goods are. And now we're enabled to do that, which is spiritually good. And this is beautifully captured in uh, uh, Philippians 2.13. Paul says, You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You get to work. You, You... you will and do that which is uh, spiritually good. But it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. It is God by the Spirit who has brought you to life and who is sustaining you in this. And you see this wonderful, um, you know, we'll say it again, but the regeneration is monergistic. Uh, mono, one, uh, um, um, uh, what, germ, um, 
ergs. Ergs are a, a, a measure of energy or work or something, right? Isn't that correct? Yeah. Well, that those two words come together in monergistic. There's one working. Whereas in sanctification, it is synergistic. That is, there's more than one working. There's God who's working within you to will and to do, but it's you also working, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, the uh, Psalms, Psalm 110 puts it beautifully. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power. When God's power comes on a person, revolutionized, re- re- renovates the, the disposition, they freely offer themselves to him. But in this life, we don't do it perfectly, as Galatians 5 and Romans 7 so clearly show us. Now there's a warfare going on. Uh, and in fact, it might be provocative, but I think it's useful to note this. The unregenerate person, uh, because he's in bondage to sin, every act that he ever performs is pure in its sinfulness. The externals may change. Uh, It may be outwardly virtuous, but because it comes from a heart that is dead in trespass and sin, it is pure with respect to sin. The regenerate person now has that bondage completely broken. And it follows from that. Never again can the regenerate person be pure in sin. It's always a person who has the capacity and is struggling both to love and serve the Lord and to put sin to death. And now to head toward uh, the last point, um, in, uh, when we're glorified, we're pure in righteousness. Um, so, uh, any any questions on on that point? That is the regenerate. Yes, please, Alan. Uh, Dave, the difference between nine three and nine four. In 9.3, it says, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. The spiritual good in 9.4 does not have that added little bit of accompanying salvation. Right. Um, I, I think it's just um, willing to be elaborate at one point and then speaking in shorthand in another. But it's the same. It's yeah. still the same spiritual good accompanying salvation. Yeah. Yes, also I, I, yes, I believe that is right. Thank you. Um, and in fact, uh, to, to maybe tie it together a little more clearly, um, that uh, to do what is spiritually good for the regenerate uh is the fruit of faith and the proof of a genuine faith. And so this is the necessary accompaniment of salvation. Okay. But it's no longer towards salvation. That's right. Salvation has 
is is, is a done deal. So to say. yes, that's right. That's right. Yep. Good. Good, good point. Thank you. Any other comment or concern? All right. So on to the last. The will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory only. Um, the, uh, um, when we're glorified, we're not put back in the place of Adam. We are put in the place of Jesus. Jesus, second Adam. Remember, the first Adam was under a probation. If he violated the probation, he was going to die. Implied in the idea of the tree of life, which he's uh, excluded from because of his sin, implied was had he succeeded in the probation, he would have an unadulterated life rather than the possibility of losing that life. He'd have been fixed in that life. And what Christ accomplishes for us is being fixed. No longer are we upright mutably, but we will be upright immutably after the pattern, after the immutable life of our Savior. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit who will ever be indwelling in us. And the Holy Spirit will not work in us as it were mutably, but only toward the goal of us ever more and more reflecting the image of uh, Christ. Edwards in his great work on freedom of the will uh, does some really heavy philosophical lifting that may be uh, difficult for most people. But about the middle of the book, he, he turns to um, an argument from paradigms. And he said, look, um, think of the man Jesus Christ. He, it was not possible for him to sin because he was immutably holy. And yet, he is a paradigm of freedom to will. He, he, he's what freedom to will is all about since he is the paradigmatic second Adam, the, the true man. Think of God himself. It says it's impossible for God to lie. Now, is that a constraint on God? Is God's will being cramped in or something like that? No, it's impossible for him to lie because it's impossible for him not to be holy, perfectly holy, and immutably holy. And yet, God, if anybody, remember we said he's most free, most absolute, when we look, we're looking at the description of him. There's no freer being in the universe than God. And yet, God is immutably fixed in a holy disposition so that all that he wills is holy. So our new disposition, perfectly transformed, the old, perfectly discarded. As glorified, we will be disposed to that which is good only, and that not mutably, but immutably. That uh, Two texts which are quite precious to this respect in the 
proofs. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's the great promise. We shall be like him, and we shall be like him immediately. And then Jude 24, that Christ is the one who keeps us from falling and is going to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That's the hope that's before us, and it's a grand and glorious hope. Um, uh, and it's perfectly consistent with the idea that we will be perfectly free in heaven to do what we want to do. And the glorious thing is that all we'll want to do uh, is to love and to serve uh, without any shadow or shifting or turning. Amen. Well, uh, Tony, let me uh, go to you and see if, if, if that gets at what you were wanting to talk about or do you want to go further on it? Uh, I think he addressed it. So that, that, I guess that's the difference between the uh, mutable and immutable states. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. All right, uh, great question. <laughs> All right, anyone else? Um, uh, we are on the home stretch time-wise. I, I knew I wasn't going to get through free will uh, in a half an hour. Um, but anyway, it's so important, it's worth the, the effort for you to, to try and grasp this and because uh, you can see how if, if you don't get this right, it undermines the doctrine of election, it undermines the doctrine of human agency and responsibility, it undermines the doctrine of predestination, or excuse me, of providence, um, and it undermines... Uh, uh, the doctrine of sanctification as well. I mean, just so many things tied to it, and so it's worth trying to wrestle through it. Uh, let me say in closing here that uh, next week we'll start with the covenant and then go on to the mediator of the covenant. Chapter 7 may be the confession of faith's uh, highest achievement and contribution to the history of theology. Covenant, uh, uh, the covenant played a role in all theology since the apostolic age. But the role was not um, uh, sometimes as, uh, it wasn't grasped as significant as it could be, uh, nor was it coordinated well with the whole scheme of redemption the way it should have been. And what happened at the Reformation was a uh, deeper understanding of the significance of the covenant and for the first time attempts to systematically unfold that doctrine from the scripture and integrate it with our whole understanding of the rest of systematic theology. And uh, there were several great theologians who contributed to it. Calvin was just the beginning, baby steps. Uh, Coxius and Vucius and, uh, and some of the Puritans. And by the time we get to Westminster, 
We are at the pinnacle of the fruitfulness of this great work of getting covenant to its right place and having it properly in integrated into systematic theology and into the history of redemption, our understanding of the history of redemption. And so it's a tremendously important chapter. And it's also a wonderful chapter as we reflect on it. So um, again, we're, we're not going to race through that, um, uh, but uh, I'll look forward to being with you uh, next week and uh, carrying on with our study. Um, anybody want to get a last word in here on anything we've been talking about tonight? All right. Well, thank you again very much for being here and let me close with prayer. Our Father, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, we thank you that you have given us agency, that we can know the world, that we can love in the world, and to have that love translating itself into action directed from who we are inwardly. And so we are grateful that we are not simply creatures of instinct, uh, creatures of um, uh, mechanistic response to stimulus but that rather we are agents and in this you've made us like you and we pray that we, we would glory in that and we pray that you'd help us to understand uh, this as it were abstractly considered and then in the four states that uh, we find ourselves in thinking about redemption uh, in creation, in as fallen, as redeemed, and as glorified. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.